0: Welcome, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to worship at Bull Helvey Church. It's great that you can join us today for our Sunday service. And I welcome wherever you're coming from in the country, uh, whether you're nearby in the parish of Bulhelvey or further flung within the UK or indeed even overseas. It's great to have you with us. We're going to begin our service this morning in the words of the hymn, I the Lord of Sea and Sky. Let's worship God together. Let us come before God in prayer now. Let us pray together. God to whom we belong. The scriptures teach us and Christ has shown us that each person is of infinite worth to you. That you delight in the variety of your creation and that you dwell in the love that holds us together as your one body. In your Son, Jesus Christ, we believe that the dividing walls that keep us apart have been torn down. For gathered around the cross, we have no choice but to see ourselves as one with the rest of humanity people who fall short in so many ways and yet are loved unconditionally by the God of grace. Lord, when you stepped into our world, you didn't just take on flesh. You entered into our humanity. You became our second Adam, our new head, perfectly uniting the human with the divine and through your life, death and resurrection, reasserting your lordship over our lives as one human family, even if as yet that oneness hasn't been realized. And so, Lord, you call us to walk in your way to follow you in all our living. But we confess that at times we've failed to love, becoming alienated from you, from others, and from our very selves. Help us overcome the temptation to live in fear, insular and distant from one another. Help us find the strength in you to stop quietly accepting ways of thinking and living that exclude and scapegoat people you love and died to save. Let us never forget who we are in you because it is only in you that we are freed from the tyranny of guilt and sin to act with a sincere passion for people and for justice. Lord, trusting in your future promise, your benevolent will and your mighty power, we anticipate the day when human divisions will be overcome and you will be all in all. Living and moving in your spirit, strengthen us to be active participants in the fulfillment of that promise. Because we ask it all in Christ's name. And in his name we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our reading this morning is Acts 4, reading verses 1 to 12, and reading from the message translation of the Bible. Just to give you a wee bit of context, in the previous chapter, Peter has healed a crippled man in the temple courts, and he's been explaining the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the crowds, but the authorities aren't happy with what he has to say. And Marian Reed now picks up the story for us.
1: While Peter and John were addressing the people, the priests, the chief of the temple police, and some Sadducees came up indignant that these upstart apostles were instructing the people and proclaiming that the resurrection from the dead had taken place in Jesus. They arrested them and threw them in jail until morning, for by now it was late in the evening. But many of those who listened had already believed the message, in round numbers about 5,000. The next day a meeting was called in Jerusalem. The rulers, religious leaders, religion scholars, Annas the chief priest... Caiaphas, John, Alexander, everybody who was anybody was there. They stood Peter and John in the middle of the room and grilled them. Who put you in charge here? What business do you have doing this? With that, Peter, fool of the Holy Spirit, let loose. Rulers and leaders of the people, if we have been brought to trial today for helping a sick man put under investigation regarding this healing, I'll be completely frank with you, we have nothing to hide. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you killed on a cross, the one God raised from the dead, by means of his name, this man stands before you healthy and whole. Jesus is the stone you masons throughout, which is now the cornerstone. Salvation comes no other way, no other name has been or will be given to us by which we can be saved. Only this one.
0: Why is it that even with a whole nine months in which to make up their minds, most parents still haven't decided what to call their baby by the time it arrives? Well, it's not a decision that you take lightly. For better or for worse, the child is stuck with the name that it's given at least until it's old enough to make up its own mind and change its name by deed poll if it so chooses. But there are lots of things to take into consideration. Some Christian names run in families for generations. In the highlands and the islands, it's often the case that you can't just call someone by their first name because so many other people share it. You have to add a specifier. It's never just Donald. People don't just talk about Donald, it's Donald Archie or Donald Murdo or Donald Michael, Uh, Big Donald, Wee Donald, that kind of thing. It's what you have to do because these traditional names are so common. And it's continuity to think about as well. It's a long time since we were choosing baby names, but with a Ross and a Mary already in the family, We felt we'd set a precedent and had to choose something Scottish-sounding for our third child when she came along, which is why we ended up with Isla, which was a name we loved anyway. And I think the rock star Frank Zappa must have had the same kind of idea. He called his kids Moon Unit, Dweezil, and Ahmed, and Diva. I reckon he was working on the principle that if you, you start weird, you've got to keep going on that track. And if all else fails, of course, you can always do what some of the Puritans did. They would ask God to show them what to call their newborn baby. They would open the Bible at a random page, stick their finger on it, and the first word that they saw was the name that they would give to their child, which led to classic names like Maybe Barnes, Notwithstanding Griswold, and Job Raked Out the Ashes Hamilton. All genuine names. It's a tough business, choosing the right name. And I think part of the reason that many of us wait to the last moment is because somehow we feel that the name has to fit the child. We need to see the baby before we can name it. We want to choose a name that sounds and feels right for him or her. But interestingly, when it came to the most important person who's ever lived, His parents didn't get that choice. The name of their son was already chosen because of who he was and what he was about to do. In Luke's gospel, when Mary gives God her yes to carrying his son, Gabriel tells her that the boy is to be named Jesus. And Matthew expands on that because in his gospel, Gabriel also visits Joseph to calm his fears about the pregnancy. And while he's there, he says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the literal meaning of Jesus or Joshua in the Hebrew. God saves. The child's name is also his destiny. As Peter tells the Sanhedrin in today's reading from Acts, salvation comes no other way. No other name has been or will be given to us by which we can be saved. Only this one. Now I want to do a little experiment with you this morning. I want you to take a look at this for a moment. What is your first reaction to that graffiti? Does it sit comfortably with you or uncomfortably? Jesus saves. I know how I used to feel when I saw that kind of graffiti back before I came to faith, it annoyed me. It got under my skin. I thought it was pious religious twaddle put there by people who thought that they were better than everyone else. I picked up a lot of judgment and moralism in some of the religious people I knew. And if that what was being saved was all about, then I couldn't have been less interested. Deep down inside though, there was a little part of me that felt uneasy when I was confronted with those words. What if there was something in all of this that I was missing? What if behind all that religiosity, there was a core of something good, something that actually spoke into the reality of my life and asked something of me, asked for a response? Well, it turned out that I was right to be worried because God caught up with me in the end. But now I'm a Christian, those words still don't sit entirely easily with me, but for a different reason. When people daub Jesus saves on a wall, I'm not sure how many of them understand the scope of what they're saying. Because for many people, that phrase is a code for Jesus will get you into heaven when you die. And although that is true, that is only one color in the spectrum of Christian teaching, one musical line in the symphony that God is playing. Many years ago now, I did a study of the word save as part of a study leave project. And the striking thing is that in the Old Testament, salvation was always about the here and now and not... The distant future. Every time you read a psalm and hear people asking God to save them, it's this world that they're thinking about. People pray to be saved from their enemies or from sickness or from guilt or from danger, sometimes from death itself if somebody is out to get them. And as you progress through the Old Testament and into the time of the prophets, there was a heightened awareness that we needed save from the consequences of our sin and our poor God-ignoring choices. But that salvation was always spoken of as a present reality, not something that was off in a hypothetical future. Save us now, God, they were saying. And for me, that's an important point. The gospel is as much about the present as it is about the future. It's about the here and now and not just there and then. I firmly believe in an afterlife. I believe that each one of us will have to stand before God and give an account for the way that we've lived. And that's everyone, by the way. Christians don't get an opt-out. In the book of Romans and in 2 Corinthians, Paul spells that out for us. Here in Romans 14, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So judgment will come. But when the gospel is boiled down to the question of how my individual soul is made right with God and presented as though that were the only issue that matters, we are missing out on whole swathes of the gospel, whole swathes of Jesus' teaching. Salvation is bigger than that. It's not just about how individual souls will be saved, it's about how the world will be saved. How the cosmos will be saved. How it will be saved from human sin and all that goes with it human greed, human lust, human pride, human oppression, human hypocrisy and dishonesty, human violence and racism, human chauvinism, human injustice. Human exploitation in all its different forms. In his teaching, Jesus speaks into all of these here and now things. They're not inconsequential. And he doesn't just want to save us from them. He calls us into the struggle against them. And I defy anyone, religious or not, to read a newspaper and tell me that we don't need that kind of salvation in our world. When a police officer, a rogue police officer, somebody charged with the protection of the public, takes it upon himself to kneel on a man's neck for nine minutes, ignoring his pleas that he couldn't breathe, ignoring the protests of people around him who could see what was happening, and adds yet another name to the list of black people killed in police custody in the United States over the last five years. God save us. When elements use legitimate protests against systemic racism and police brutality as an excuse for looting and vandalism, when their selfish opportunism undermines the cause of those taken to the streets in righteous but peaceable anger, God save us. When military police in full riot gear used tear gas and concussion grenades to clear a church concourse of peaceful protesters so that the president can have a photo opportunity in front of a church with a Bible in hand. God save us. When we rightly despair About the 40,000 who've died in our own country from COVID over the last three months, but give little or no thought to the 20,000 who die every single day in our world from preventable diseases and malnutrition. God save us. God save us, we murmur under our breath. We know that the world is not the way it should be and that we are not the way we should be. We need saving from all the damage that our slavery to the imperious eye does to us and to others. All the consequences that follow when we choose our own way rather than God's way. The world needs a saviour. If only we had one. Well, we do have one, and his name is Jesus. But the world has not believed in his name. And it's easy for we in the church to lay lay the blame for that on others. But what if we in the church are part of the problem? What if the way that we've privatized and individualized the gospel and turned it inwards and treated the world as little more than an anti-room for the afterlife has made folk think that the gospel has nothing of value to say to them in their real lives? What if there's an uncomfortable truth in Friedrich Nietzsche's comment? that he might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. Does our faith make a difference to our lives? And the way we choose to live in the world, the things we tolerate, the things we defend, the things we allow and permit, and give assent to by our silence? Maybe part of the answer is to remember what we've spoken about this morning. The purpose of Christ coming to us was to save us from the consequences of our sin in the afterlife, but also in the here and now, to put us right with God, but also with our fellow human beings. There is work to be done in living out the gospel message in the here and now. And that's not all about me and my soul. It's about the power of God coming to change and transform our world. The confession of the faith of the, sorry, the confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church in America puts it well when it says these words. We know that our efforts cannot bring in God's kingdom. But hope plunges us into the struggle for victories over evil that are possible now in the world and the church and our own individual lives. A God who helps me be reconciled with myself and the people around me because I have given him his rightful place in my life that's the kind of God I can believe in. That's the kind of salvation I need and can preach. That's a faith that's worthy of the name. And if that's what people mean when they daub Jesus saves on the walls, then preach on, brothers and sisters. Preach on. Because that is the kind of salvation that our world needs. Amen. We're now going to take a moment to pray for others and for our world. And Anne Shirin is going to lead us in those prayers.
2: Let us pray, Father God, Sometimes we think the most infuriating thing about injustice is the absence of the acknowledgement of wrong. When we hear the Gospel accounts of the injustices generated by the Pharisees and Sadducees against Jesus and his disciples Peter and John and the Roman soldiers who carried out their orders without thinking about the injustice, we recognise that what they were doing was wrong. We can see the injustice, but no one knows the depths of injustice better than you, God. We have read about Jesus' anger in the temple. We know that his anger was righteous anger. He was angry at what makes God angry, the degradation of the house of God, the temple of Jerusalem. This was righteous anger against sin. Lord, help us to have the same righteous anger, and may it encourage us to speak out and act. But do not let our anger lead us to a place of unrighteous anger, to a place where we commit sin out of our anger. Holy Spirit, lead our hearts to know how to manage our anger and how to use it wisely for the glory of your kingdom. You know what injustice is like, God. Every sin committed is an injustice against you. Lord, help us to fight injustice in the right way. We may always seek to look to you as the solution. Lord, let our hearts be transformed by your grace. May this time of injustice produce opportunities for conversation to talk about grace, mercy and forgiveness. May we seek you in our quest for justice. And may we continue to pray in your name for justice to be served when lives are taken and hateful actions are committed. Help us to look to you and to your word to remind us of what injustice should look like. We pray for those in the world who are suffering from injustice because of their race, colour, or religion, for those imprisoned for working for the relief of oppression, for those who are persecuted for speaking the inconvenient truth, for those tempted to violence as a cry against overwhelming hardship for those deprived of reasonable health and education, for those suffering from hunger and famine, for those too weak to help themselves and who have no one else to help them, for the unemployed who cry out for work but do not find it. We pray for those who mourn. Give them the strength to know that their loved ones are with you in everlasting life. We pray for those families who are struggling to cope with lockdown and the restrictions placed upon them those suffering financial hardship, loneliness and isolation, and sadness as a result of broken family relationships. We pray for our minister Paul, his family, the elders and church congregation, that you will bless them and keep them in your mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' name, your loving Son. Amen.
0: closing hymn this morning is inspired by love and Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.